Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we're in for a treat. We're talking with George Sensonetis, a silver and bronze medalist at the Paralympics, four-time Paralympian, overall uh, second overall in the World Cup. One time was the highest that he that he ever finished, second in the Super G as well. World Cup winner. George, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. And you know what? George is actually joining us a couple of days after rotator cuff surgery. So, George, thank you for bearing through the pain and coming to talk to us. Hopefully, we'll distract you from the pain a little bit. Yeah, that, that's a blessing right there, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> so, George, when did you, you got started early at skiing in skiing. And why did you get started? I mean, like your father's from Greece, right? How did you get started skiing? How did this end up working out? Why? You know, I don't remember if it was my dad or my mom, but, uh, you know, one of the two got me started. I was young, two years old. And um, it was just something that we did as a family, you know, and um, we just kept going and going and going on weekends and weekends and you know, it was it was a blessing in disguise because it brought me to the U.S. ski team where I met you and, you know, all the other great people that are in the small community. And, uh, you know, it changed my life substantially. But, you know, it's a fun uh, exercising. It's it, it, it's it's freedom. And, you know, anybody out there that does it is going to tell you the same thing. There's nobody to tell you what to do. You do how you want. You ski how you ski, and that's that's how it is. And was it just skiing, or was it part of rehab? Because part of like you have you have a condition called dystonia that is sort of like I always thought of it as kind of like cerebral palsy, right? Where you have you have some spasticity, uh, some imbalance. Was was the thought of just the family skis, and that's what you're going to do, or was the thought that it, this was going to be partially rehab? You know, it didn't kick in until I was uh, 11 years old. So it, it wasn't a part of my life until I went, I went away to summer camp one day and I woke up and I had muscle spasms and I didn't say anything because I figured, you know what, I'm a kid, I'm out here playing, maybe I fell down, maybe I pulled something and I didn't mention a thing, you know, just thinking that it's going to go away, it's going to go away, it's going to go away. And it didn't. And my parents noticed it and they thought it was going to go away. And I was taking the doctors and, you know, masseuses and acupuncture and all kinds of therapists, all kinds of therapy. And um, to try to figure out what was going on. And, you know, it took several years before we got it diagnosed. But I was able to ski even though I had trouble walking. So, I can remember being on the able-bodied ski team when I was in high school and being on crutches. And my coach brought my skis to me and I gave him my crutches and I skied away. And at the end of the day, I got my crutches back and he got my skis. So, um, so it was worse than it kind of in high school together, you know? Right. So that's weird. So you went from being, from being a completely normal kid 
to yeah. all of a sudden overnight, like having this spasticity, nobody knew what was going on. And then, and then it was, it sounds like it was worse when you were in high school than it was when I knew you, because you never used crutches. When I knew you, you had a bit of a swagger to your step and stuff like that. But, but so it was worse when you were in high school. Yeah. Um, you know, they were introducing me to different medications and stuff, you know? So uh, I went away to boarding school where, you know, they figured maybe that it'd be less stress, less impact and not being around my parents all the time and hearing arguing or any of that, you know, just a, a different environment away from, away from all the family stress. And I started a new medication at that time as well. So, you know, I can't say that it was just one thing and not the other. Um, but I think it gave me time to figure things out, maybe, you know, and, and focus on school and not focus on, you know, my parents and how they're dealing with my disability and letting that new medication work. And uh, I mean, I mean, here I am today. I mean, no more crutches. You know that. I mean, you know, I've walked into opening and closing ceremonies with you several times. And it's, it's a great feeling not having to have anything, any, any aids to do that with. How did they figure out what, what the, how did they finally come to the diagnosis? Oh man, so many testing was going on. I spent weeks at a time in the hospital, um, spinal taps, blood tests, going to see specialists. It was like getting drugged to, it was like racing the world cup, man, you know? except you didn't know what doctor you were going to see or what event it was going to be. You went from doctor to doctor, like venue to venue, you know, and you don't know if this one's going to stick you or this one's going to probe you or this one's going to tell you to do this, do that. And, um, you know, it was just extensive. And, you know, you had, I had to be mentally ready for that because I wanted to figure out what this was and I wanted to see myself improve and I wanted to see my, my lifestyle get better or figure out a way to solidify things and keep it at one level if I couldn't get any better just to make sure I didn't get any worse. And, you know, just how to keep things how they were and to find out a way to live with that and not let it get to me. And I think that was the biggest step to overcome, especially when, you know, you're not even a teenager yet. Did you at some point think that it might all just be in your head? Like nobody had any answers, it sounds like early on. Are you thinking, am I just imagining this or, or you know, was well, it a relief? I, when they told me about it, um, it was a total shocker because they say that it's hereditary and they did, you know, a family analysis of your family history and they didn't find anybody with any symptoms or anything. So for me to be the only one and for it to be such slim pickings, uh, we really couldn't point a finger, you know? But I was just like, hey man, I'm still alive. I'm kicking, I'm breathing every day and I'm not gonna let this affect my life. What was their diagnosis? Did they tell you like, this is what you need to expect or? Uh, you know what? I was told that 
it was going to get worse. I was going to end up eventually in a wheelchair for life. And that just was not acceptable. I'm not saying that being in a wheelchair is not. I mean, look at you. You're in one. You've made it, you know, great accomplishments. But I just didn't want to see myself go from walking to in a wheelchair and being there and saying, I can't stop this or there's nothing that I can do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I went down the avenue of what if I get my muscles stronger? Would that enhance my strength so that my muscles will overcome my muscle spasms? So I started hitting the gym. And I mean, why not have stronger muscles than, you know, you're, they can't get as much specificity. Um, and I think that that really kickstarted being as, as, uh, as mobile as I was. And I think that that had a big thing to do with that and not letting myself, you know, stagnate or get worse. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And, and was that your thought or was that something that came from the doctors? How did, how did you arrive? No, at that? no, that, that was my thought. Um, that was my thoughts. Totally. Um, I mean, I kept hearing that it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Not it's going to get better. Don't worry about it. It's going to get better. Um, you know, being dragged around, like I said, from doctor to doctor, to institute, to institute, to acupuncturists, to massage therapists, to chiropractors, and each person giving me their own um, their own feedback on what they think is going to happen and how what they're doing is is going to help. I didn't want to have that lifestyle of having to see a chiropractor or a masseuse or a whatever for the rest of my life. And uh, we just went down the medicine road, I guess, if that's what you want to call it. And, Who was your support at that time? You know, my biggest support was family. You know, my, my father was there for me 100% of the time. My mom was there for me as well. Um, and uh, I mean, I had to support. I had to give myself support too. Because, yeah. I mean, when my parents aren't there, and I am, you know, what am I supposed to do? I'm a kid. I, I, I played games. I socialized. I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to lose friends. But, you know, as everybody knows, though, kids are the meanest people in the world because they tease other people and they say things that they don't know that hurts other people until later in life. So I went through that whole thing of losing friends and being called names and, you know, the whole thing where back then, you know, sorry, it was a word, but it meant a lot. Um, but, but to me, the biggest thing was just overcoming and finding out and, you know, just trying to get life to be as best as possible for myself. Was that something that helped with regard to the friends as well? Your, your positive motion? You know, I've been a positive person all my life. And I even try to find positive things in a negative situation. Um, you know, call me stupid if you will, but that's your choice. But I think that, you know, when you think positively, uh, you have a more positive outcome in life. And that's basically the road that I took. And has that been the case your whole life? Like from 
before the diagnosis, after the diagnosis? It's just who no, you are? I, I think it's definitely changed since the diagnosis. Because I don't know, your my mind your mindset changes when you get it when a disability sets in. And you know that you're gonna have that for the rest of your life. So you have to adapt. And uh like they say, man, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. What role did skiing play for you? You said you skied on your high school team when you were still trying to figure out what was going on, what the right medication was. How did that work? You know, it, it took my mind to a different place. I didn't think about my disability. I didn't think of um, what's the next step. I just thought, I get to go and do something that I enjoy, you know? And nobody can make fun of me because you, you can't. Everyone skis. Everyone skis different, you know? There's, there's not a right way to ski. There's not a, you know? So, um, and it took, it took my mind away. It just brought me to a happy place. And uh, it worked. I, I was I was just in this place where I didn't have to worry about people making fun of me or people staring at me or whatever. I had a place where I knew I was going to have fun. You knew you were going to have fun, but then there are those certain difficulties. Like, I mean, if you're having trouble getting around, sometimes you're worried about those things that can embarrass you, right? Like even just getting into the start or something like, or falling out of the start or... These kinds of things. Chris, I've crashed in front of many, many people wearing U.S. team gear, having yard sales with skis, boots, poles, helmets, goggles, flying, and guys going, he's on the U.S. team. He's on the U.S. team. Come on. A fall out of the start, a straddle, a gate. I mean, I was a kid. Who cares? When you're a kid, you don't think about that stuff. There's no money on the line. It's just fun. That's a great mindset. And the thing is, it's it's great for all the rest of us to remember that, that don't take yourself too seriously, right? Yeah, for sure. Just go have fun. You know, I've spoken at, at schools. Um, and what I say to the parents is, if your kid finds something that they really enjoy, even if it can be, very financially, uh, you know, difficult, especially like skiing. I mean, it's an expensive sport. Do your best to keep your kids in it because you don't know where it's going to take them. I didn't know where I was going to be. You know, I, I had always, when I'm growing up in New York, I went to Lake Placid in 1980. I watched the Olympics and I always watched it. And I told my dad, dad, I'm going to go there one day. I'm going to go there one day. And it was just in my mindset. And, you know, if you want something bad enough and you work hard enough for it, you're going to get there. What did your dad say to you when you told him that you were going to the Olympics when you were a little kid? Uh, you know what? That was such a long time ago. I don't remember. But I can remember when I got that letter that, that said that I made the U.S. disabled ski team, you know? When, when did you start thinking about that? Because you might not have even seen 
Paralympic sport. I mean, you were racing in a fully able-bodied world, right? Well, yeah, I moved to Townsend, New Mexico in 1990 after, after I graduated high school. And I worked there as a ski tech. And I met Kenny Lacombe, you know, a friend of yours, one of yeah. your, you know, one of your teammates. And um, so I used to travel on the road with him and it opened up a door to a world that I've never seen before, you know? And I was like, this is fucking badass. There is an opportunity. Look at this. There are people out here that got worse disabilities than I am. And they're out here having fun and they're skiing and they're enjoying themselves and they get to travel the world. Like, like who's going to say no to that? So um, I, I was getting donations from people. I mean, even if it was a dollar, I was happy. And I would write down everyone's name. And even if it was a dollar, Chris, I would write a thank you note to that person. And I would, <coughs> excuse me, I would hand deliver those personally to everybody that gave me money that was there to support me in any way. Everybody got a handwritten thank you note. And, um, you know, it helped me gas money to get to races, uh, race entry fees. Um, I mean, I used to burn up my dad's credit cards on hotels. Dad, I just booked a hotel at Nationals for a week. And you know what he used to tell me? As long as you're not running downhill, I don't care. And then he's like, well, the races don't start till four days. Why are you going early? Oh, I'm going out there, test out the snow, you know, get some training in. Of course I was running downhill. My dad wasn't dumb, but you know what? He knew I loved it. So once I told him that I was running downhill, uh, he didn't freak out too much because, you know, back then you could follow the you know all the all the places on on the internet it's not like today where you can only follow able-bodied you know so but i just had that drive and if there's a will there's a way you were really good at getting support that was part of because I, i remember seeing you with you know back when you were like with a lawn and stuff like that you had you had equipment, you had more equipment than anybody. I mean, you were, you, that, to what do you attribute this? Is this the thank you notes? Is this, did you have a gift of gab? How did you, how did you, how did you talk these people into, into supporting you? Was, was your dream? What, what was the, how did it happen? You know what? Uh, I used to, well, since I worked at a ski area, um, I used to meet the reps and I would get a business card. And, and I worked at the rental shop. So we had demo skis and I'd go and I would demo all the gear, you know, and, and then I, I signed up and I got onto that program um, to where, you know, you filled out the cards and it was put in skiing magazine and, and ski magazine. And it was, you know, the test things. I don't know if any of my things ever made it that far, but, you know, uh, a please and a thank you goes a long way and sending out resumes to every ski manufacturer that you can think of and bindings and boots and follow-up phone calls and pictures sent and posters 
you know what? You put the time in, you're going to find it. And somebody put their, put their faith in me. And they started like, you know what? Let's give this kid a shot. I mean, after I won my two medals in Nagano, silver and a bronze, I was on K2 and I lost my sponsorship. And then I got home from work one night. This is back when Alan Bender was our coach. And there was a message on my, on my, on my phone and it was Elon skis. And we're like, we just heard that, you know, you lost your ski sponsor. What do you need? How many pairs? And where do we send them? So word gets out and maybe it's just, it was word of mouth. I don't know. Maybe I was just so persistent and they were just like, everyone's look, find someone to sponsor this kid so we can leave me alone. That's a possibility. So he'll um, stop calling me. Give yeah, him some stop skis. calling me. Give this guy skis. We got skis. Just give it to him. He's not asking for money. Give him the skis. Just give him what he needs. And uh, I mean, for you and I to ask somebody for eight pairs of skis a year is really not a lot. If you look at look at the Able Body World Cup. They're probably sharing. 250 pair of skis between four athletes right yeah so four pair of skis is nothing but like i said persistence thank you notes pleases thank yous how can i help uh offering to pay um was not always the smartest idea because you end up paying but the hardest thing is selling yourself because the companies are making money selling skis and selling yourself to them. That's, that's business. It's business and it's, a, and there's a technique to it, right? I mean, I think it's, it's often the hardest thing for anybody to do. Is that something you felt was easier for you? You know, uh, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know if it was, easy because I wanted it that bad or if it was uh, a talent that I have in me that just came out um, I can't give you a, a straight up answer with that but um, I just think that I was focused and dedicated and I was just like this either gonna happen and if not I'm gonna bug them till I retire you know and uh, I got I got lucky I got sponsored by K2 and then, and then Elon and then Nordica. And, uh, and then I, after that, then I retired, but um, it was a hard road. It was a hard road to go down. Oh, it's always a hard road to make it happen, right? You have a dream, but then all the intermediate steps are, think, are the challenge. Correct. But I think the hardest thing is is once you make it happen, it's harder to keep it happening because you have to keep up with the results. You can't have an off year and say, all right, I didn't win anything this year. You know, how am I, how am I supporting your product? It's, it's just like life, you know? You try to make every year better than the previous year and it doesn't always happen. But you can't let the public know that. You got to keep that part to yourself and make yourself show that you're accomplished. And I think 
you know, once you're able and you're focused on that in one aspect in life, then you can carry through. It doesn't make you a liar at all. You know, it just, it just, it puts you in a different perspective and people look at you in a different way. You know, he is, he's a hard worker. He does well. Look at him. He wasn't this happy last year at this time, but he seems to be happier now. You know, you gotta, you gotta take what life gives you. Exactly. I mean, look, look what we're going through now with all this Corona crap, you know, people are losing jobs. People are dying. Um, Kids are not getting education that they're needed. That's just my opinion. Um, And people are forced to be at home. Nobody wants to stay home. I don't stay home. I got a Toro Roche tater cuff. I went out goose hunting two weeks before my surgery. I can't make my shoulder any worse than it was. You know, doctors still going to fix it. They still cut me open. They still fix me. I mean, you just, you can't let little things get in the way. Follow the rules, but make sure that you follow the rules that you set in life. Because those are the rules that are going to make you who you are. You keep talking about persistence. What are your other tenants? What are the other things that you that you look to and say, this is what I have to follow? One's persistence, it sounds like, but what else is up there? I think it's just being goal-orientated. Mm-hmm. You need to set attainable goals in life. You know, all right, I want to own a car. All right. This is what I have to do to do that. I want to own a home. Okay, what do I have to do to do that? I want to get married. I want to whatever. Make make things that are going to be reachable. Don't put things that are out of reach. I think maybe people overlook that, you know? Um, and I don't know if it's just the persistence, but I think it's just being honest with yourself and not lying to yourself and others, you know? It's, it, it just set a good precedent and work towards what you want. And if you work hard enough, you're gonna get there. So being realistic, it's, it's setting the goals and yeah, then putting in absolutely. the work. You gotta, you have to have, you gotta be able to focus on the future, forget about your past, cause you can't change what already happened, but you can change what's gonna happen tomorrow. You can't change the weather, but you can change how you're going to deal with it, right? That's exactly it. Can you describe to people how you ski? I ski just like, well, I say a normal person because I consider myself pretty normal. Two skis, two poles, pair of boots. I get dressed just like everybody else, man. One foot first and then the next. And how does, uh, I go down. How does and, I don't, I don't, I don't use any adaptive equipment. I don't use outriggers, which are, uh, you know, some people call them um, ski balls with skis on the end of them. Um, I just ski like any regular person that you would ski at the ski hill. Two skis, two poles. Right, but you're also contending with this spasticity, right? You get muscles. That are that are working counter to your objective at times. I I don't even even in my everyday working life. Um, I don't notice my spasms. I don't know if it's because I'm used to them, 
or I'm just focused on what the beat is. I don't notice it. I, I could be I could be on the couch with my girlfriend and she'll be like, oh, did you take your pills tonight? And I was like, oh, I missed them by you know a few hours. And she's like, oh, I can tell. And I'm like, oh, am I having spasms? She's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't even notice it, you know? So maybe it's, I'm, I'm so used to it that I don't know that they're there. But being told by the woman that's sitting next to you, she's not gonna make it up, you know? It's just, it's just my, my, my mind, my mind, it's mind over matter, basically. Is that the way it was when you were skiing? Did you not notice your spasms? Did you not account for the spasms in terms of like your line or any of those kinds of things, the way you're going into a turn or what might happen in a turn? Did you account for the spasms or did you not? Oh, uh, no way. I was just trying to get down the hill the fastest way I could from the top to the bottom. And you know what? The coaches always said, I don't care what it looks like. As long as it's fast and you're winning, that's what we're looking for. So, I mean, there was no fashion show on how good you got to look skiing, you know? It's not like back in the day where everybody has their feet stuck together and wiggling their butt to ski down those little, you know, st straight stick skis and look like, you know, you could do a line of bumps. Hell no. Man, watch the World Cup today. Yeah, I mean, they have total control, but everybody messes up on turns. You know, nobody's perfect. They're all trying to get down the hill, and that's what my focus was. So I don't care. My focus was I need to make I need to make it around this gate and the next gate and the next turn, the next turn. I knew where I was going. I just had to focus on how to get there. So letting anything get in my way, like my muscle spasms, I didn't even notice them. Do you have any idea how much you scared the people who were on the side of the trail when you were oh, scared? I scared a lot of people. You know, I scared myself. I hope you scared yourself. It didn't sound like I'm you were scared. Sure I yourself. scared you and you were one of my teammates. You scared me, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest thing I remember, George, because obviously your father didn't want you to run downhill. You gravitated toward downhill and Super G, the fastest of the events. And what I always remember of you is that, you know, you're sort of spasming and you got things going all over the place and, and you're approaching the bump in downhill. And everybody's looking at this from the side going, uh-oh, uh oh, this is going to be ugly. This is going to be ugly. It's going to be a full yard sale. He's He's... And you somehow, I have no idea, this might have been blind faith, you would get it together for the critical fraction of a second. When you were hitting the bump, you'd, you'd be in control, and then you'd be flailing all over the place again. And then you'd get it in control to land. And then you'd be flailing all over. Like, <coughs> percentage-wise, you were probably in control, like, 1% of the time. <laughs> that sounds about right. But you were okay with that. Yeah, man. I was having fun. Who cares? Who cares what you look like? You know? Who cares? 
as you know what at the end of the day you look a lot better on that podium not wearing those spandex suits when you got that metal around your neck was that the crowning moment for you when you were on the podium at the Paralympics? It was your first Paralympic Games in Nagano in 98. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I remember Ray Watkins, him and I, we did inspection together every day the entire hill. And we get to the finish line and Ray would say, all right, now you tell me how you're going to ski this course every gate. And I would tell him every gate of that course. And he says, all right, well, you know where you're going. He says, but if you ski that way, you're not going to win. And I said, then why are you asking me that? And he said, well, I want to make sure you know where you're going. I said, well, then if I don't ski that way, how am I going to win? And he said, it's the one that knows where they're going, takes the most risk, and skis the, the tightest, fastest line is going to win. And that stuck with me from day one. So knowing where you're going and not caring how you're going to make it, just get to the bottom fast. It's called success. You know, as you're saying that right now, it sounds relatively easy, right? You, you inspect the Everything course, you know what you're said than done. You know what you're supposed to do. You, you disengage your mind, the thing yeah. that's critical that's criticizing you as you're doing whatever you're doing. Okay, if you were successful, how did you achieve that? How did you, how did you get out of your mind and into the performance? Maybe I have a talent that's able to block everything else out and just focus on my, on my duty that I'm doing right then and there. Did you have a trigger or anything? Like when you were in the start, did you have anything that you said, okay, now I'm in the race. Now it's important. Here we go. That's a great question. I don't know. But I do remember um, later on in my career, uh, it took me a while before I actually won a World Cup. I think I was on a team like seven or eight years before I won my first World Cup. And um, they asked me, what did you do differently? Was it your inspection? I was like, no. I side slipped the whole thing and I never took my time. Um, and I said, but I don't know why, but it was at the start today, it was quiet. And since that day, I could hear a snowflake land when I was in the start. And I was so used to, come on, Georgie, go, come on, kill it, you know, whatever. Um, I only took course reports from certain people on the team. Uh, sometimes I didn't take any, but after that first win, the start was always quiet. And I don't know if that was, a, was the hidden mistake. I don't know. I can't tell you, but I do remember that. But there because was that our tuner, our tuner, our tuner was, I think he got sick and he wasn't in the start or there was a, no, there was an athlete another U.S. team athlete behind me that needed some something taken care of. And I was like, I got this. I know where I'm going. You know, it's a speed event. I'm comfortable. And uh, I just got my, I got myself together, pushed out of the gate. And let me tell you, beating Gert Schoenfelder 
was the most satisfying thing I've ever done on the on a pair of skis. Describe for us then who Gerd Schoenfelder is. Uh, Gerd Schoenfelder, he is like, uh, man, he was like a Marshall Hersher, but without missing, without missing an arm and four fingers. I mean, legs like tree trunks, you know, skiing is an all leg sport. And when you're going up against somebody who's got nothing wrong with their legs, um, and that's where your disability is, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta go with that. And Gerd was just such a strong skier, you know? And the way he skied, it was like, it was like watching the able-bodied World Cup on the disabled World Cup. Well, he'd skied on the German team. Uh, he, yeah, to... he, was, he was on the German able-bodied team. So beating him is like, it's like uh, I just beat, I just beat someone on the World Cup, able-bodied. And it's a damn good feeling, let me tell you. Damn good feeling. And, uh, and, 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 and him coming over to me and shaking my hand and congratulating me was probably one of the most respectful things that I've achieved in my career. Having someone, when someone comes over to you and says, you skied well today, congratulations. And it's not, and it's not someone that's on your team because your team is cheering for you. The other countries, they want a good competition. Don't get me wrong. We're all friends. You're all friends until you get in that starting gate. You're in that starting gate. Then you don't have any friends. Your teammates are not your friends anymore. You know, uh, your rivals from other countries. You have no friends in the starting gate. You got no friends on the course. The gates are not your friends. You don't respect the course. You destroy it. And I remember, stop chasing panels. Stop chasing panels. You know, and stop straight and late. But that was me. You can't change how I ski and what my effects were. It got me to the line where I needed to be at. But I mean, hearing that from Gerd, just, I mean, it was, it was an emotional moment. And I will never forget when I beat Gerd and him coming over and congratulating me because he used to, I used to tell him good race. And he would say, you too, but you're slow. You're slow, Georgie. Georgie, you're slow. And uh, when I beat him and I said, Gert, you're slow, Gert, you're slow. So it was good. It was good to, to shift that pattern around, you know, but I'll never forget that day. We were in Wolschenau and we ran that Super G on the fresh cut trail that had never been run before. And I won it. And then the next day I won the Giants long. I was, I was back to back victories and it was the best feeling. It was like the biggest weight came off my shoulders. And uh, it was like, welcome to the big games, man. Here I am. Bring your, bring it, bring it, boys. Bring it. Did you ever return that favor? So Gerd was the one who congratulated you, the guy you looked up to. Yeah. Did you ever return that favor to somebody? I returned that favor to that man for years of losing to him. And no, no, to somebody else. So, so, so did you become the target for somebody else and then say, 
to to that other person? Did you ever say, "Hey, good race"? Oh, absolutely. It's it, it's part of it. Absolutely, I have. Um, it, it's a it's a small knit community. You know, we all stay at the same hotels. We all eat together. Um, we're all at the start together. So you know, you make those connections. And, and they're lifelong connections. Just because you haven't seen someone in 10 years or 20 years, you don't forget who they are, you know? And if they accomplish something and you see something on Facebook, and you might not have commented on them in 10 or 15 years, but you see something that you feel that they need a, a comment on, tell them congratulations. If it's having a kid, if it's getting a job, if it's buying a house, whatever it is, you know what? It takes two seconds to say, congratulations on what you did but don't just say it to say it if you're going to say it make sure you mean it is that as gratifying as gerd saying to you great race to be able to say congratulations to somebody how, how to which is more important in your mind or which is more significant you know i don't think that there's i don't think that i can say that one is more important than the other i think that it just, it, it comes naturally. And, um, you know, it should be even. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be, you know, putting ticks down. Oh, well, I complimented this person 20 times and I didn't, and I got one, you know, don't take, don't take names and numbers. Just do it, man. Do it out of your heart. Don't do it because you feel that you need to. Do it because you feel that you want to and, and they deserve the congratulations. That's just, you know, you just got to, everybody looks at things differently. And uh, that's how I look at it. You skied in four games, in four yeah. Paralympics, right? Nagano was the first one. Vancouver was the last one. Yeah. Is there one that stands out to you? Well, you know, I want to say, I want to say Nagano was probably I'm not going to say my most memorable or my most fun but it probably gave me the most memories because I had victories there um you know Salt Lake was amazing because I was representing the U.S. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. you know um Sestriere, uh was awesome because I had won on that hill before and going in there with a great attitude. And my dad was there. My father was there for uh, 2006. So that was, that was awesome. Uh, my mom was, my mom was there for 2002, but I just don't think that I was mentally there. Does that make sense? I mean, sure. I knew I was in great physical shape, but um i didn't have the comfort that i did in in italy i've been on that i've won that on that hill in italy so it gave me maybe more confidence and then vancouver vancouver was fun um we had very inconsistent snow i have a different feeling for each games i can't say one was better than the other because one was better than the other one was in different ways so I can't answer your question and say that I have one that had the best. I mean, okay, maybe I can say Nagano because I won two medals there. But winning isn't always everything. 
you know, ski racing is a weird sport, right? Because you travel around the world, you go to these mountains and you often get a chance to ski one run on the mountains. You ski, you see the village or the hotel and right, you ski right. one run yeah. for a week oh, yeah. Yeah. and then you move to the next place. Are there any places that you skied either at the Paralympics or in the World Cup that you think, I want to go back there. That's the place yeah. I want to go back. You know what? It's funny you ask that because I can't ski this year because I tore my rotator cuff. And uh, my girlfriend and I, um, you know, it was this is going to be our first winter together. And, you know, we were talking about skiing and we were going to buy her skis and all kinds of stuff. And I went up to Winter Park and I got her fitted by Jacques for brand new footbeds, uh, you know, couple uh, about a month or so ago before all my surgery and all this stuff went haywire and she said let's go somewhere that you spent less time on the hill and more time at a hotel and let's go and see that place and if you want we can stay at the same hotel so you know that it's a good hotel and then we can just go and explore and I haven't even been able to give her a definitive answer of where that would be I mean the places that we've skied, we always had great snow, but we were catered to. So, you know, um, and that's not going to happen for the rest of our lives. They're not going to make sure that we have good snow. You know, I, I mean, you don't have your tuner telling you, better not take your new skis out unless you got good snow. Well, we used to have that, right? And then most places that we train, we only train if there was good snow. Um, but you know what? I want to go back to France. I want to go back to Teens. I thought that place was awesome and it was huge. And we really didn't get time to explore. You know, we got snowed in and we couldn't run speed events and it was only tech. So I probably, I probably want to go back to Teens or um, Sestriere was a really, really fun place that had great terrain and uh, a little bit of everything. So maybe back to Italy. And, and obviously you're talking about the mountains. Is the food part of the deciding factor for you as well? Oh, no, that's my girlfriend. Uh, she's the foodie. Um, I'll eat anything, you know? I remember guys on, a, on the team, they would bring food with them. I'm like, bro, it's food. You we can eat food anywhere. It's going to taste different, but it's food. You're going to be fine. Guys packing their bags with full of stuff from home you know and i'd rather throw in an extra pair of skis or two you know and then not get nailed for weight on that and throwing some food in my bag um no food is not food is not a factor no it's what was it like when you retired from from skiing were you prepared <laughs> to retire was it your choice was it the team's choice you know what uh a lot of it was mine you know uh, i was married at the time um you know when you're on the road and away from your loved ones and uh you know back then internet we never had internet at every hotel there were times we would go for weeks without internet um so uh and then you know what you had there's better equipment coming in and there were kids that are training harder and moving up in the ranks and you can only stay on the top for so long and your body can only hold up 
so long before it starts to break down. You know, I was, I'm fortunate. I never, I've never blown a knee out. I've blown everything else out, but not my knee. But you know what? I think, I think 15 years of hardcore dedication, training, uh, skiing, and it was, it was, it was time to move on. It was hard. Did you have a plan? Did you I have a plan, plan when you moved I, I don't have plans. I don't make plans. I, I go by the wing of it, just like every day. Only thing I had a plan was my, my surgery. And now, you know, here I am. I'm on Workman's Comp talking to you and getting paid. Hey. What do you, what do, you do for work? Uh, I currently work at American, American Furniture Warehouse, and I unload the furniture trucks. I like physical work. It keeps me in shape, man. Got to keep myself strong and keep those muscles strong and uh, engaged. Well, you've done a variety of things, right? I mean, you were you were felling trees. You were you were a logger for a while, weren't you? Yeah. Um, you know, I hate the gym. Totally hate the gym. So I would try and find anything that I could do physical, just to keep strong. And I love it outside. And one day. I lived with Brad Washburn, I can remember this. And Beetle Kill was just coming out. And I was like, dude, we need to start cutting down some trees. It'd be awesome to get a chainsaw and just go knock some stuff down, you know, and get paid for it. And it's physical work and everything. And it's a workout and it's fun. And we get to use power tools. I mean, come on. You, you, gotta, you gotta keep yourself active. You gotta keep your insides young. So what was this like was for the people who are working with you when you were when you're working as a logger, when you had a chainsaw in your hand? I don't know what was going through their mind and I don't know why the hell they worked with me or near me. But apparently there was some trust and uh, we got some stuff done. <laughs> yeah. They, they didn't tell you that there was an experience like I had watching you run downhill where I'm like, oh, no, he's going to die. He's going to die. Oh, well, he pulled it off. Okay. They didn't have that experience. And they never told me. <laughs> they might still be in therapy. It's possible, but I'm not paying that bill. Wow. Okay. So, so it, wasn't, it wasn't hard for you to leave the ski team then? It was. Uh, you know... I think though, the hardest part was walking away from the team environment, from being around the people that you were with day in, day out. Um, you know, the travel was awesome. Skiing for free, you can't beat that. Um, you know, getting new gear every year, uh, traveling the world, skiing in new places or old favorite places. But I miss the people. I can't pick up the phone and, and say, and call someone in Germany right now. It's, you know, uh, it's so different. It's the, I miss the camaraderie. That was the hardest thing, walking away from the people. Walking away from the people, yeah. The community, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was family. We were, we lived together, slept together, ate together race together, I mean, for years in a row. So yeah, I think leaving the walking away from people was the hardest part.
Now, do you have to pay for lift tickets? Sometimes I do. Or can you, you sweet talk your way into it? You're, you're pretty good on the sweet talking side. You know, uh, sometimes uh, I'll go out there and I'll be like, so um, do you guys have discounts for disabled skiers? You know, so, some sometimes do. And we're, for example, you know, you and I, we both have lifetime passes for uh, Park City, don't we? Uh, I'm not sure. You know, to tell you the truth, yeah. actually, I haven't skied, I I haven't skied Park City yeah. in a while. So yeah, I would think we do. Yeah, we can ski Park City for the rest of our life because we we've been to the Olympics, Paralympics. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Go check it out. And you, if they won't give it to you, you tell them to call George. <laughs> George told me. That. I'll get you on that hill. George told hill. me I'll give you his phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make you one phone call. You'll be skiing. <laughs> oh, that is great. Now. You, you do, I mean, you grew up in New York, yeah. but you are of Greek heritage as well, right? Yeah. Now, never any thought of skiing on the Greek team, I would oh, imagine. Oh, I had that thought. You know what? I've met with the Greek Paralympic team while I was on the U.S. Paralympic team three times. They wanted me. I was there to sign the papers. Um... I had a tuner that was ready to leave the team and go with me. Um, I had it set. I had it set. I knew who was going to tune my skis. I knew who was going to coach me. I knew where the money was coming from. Um, I had it. I had everything down, 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 down to the last every t, every t crossed, every dot, i dotted. I had it down, man. And um, it just, it came down to um, the fact that I didn't have my dual citizenship. I didn't have that Greek passport in hand at the time. And it's difficult when you haven't been to that country in so many years to apply for citizenship. Even though my father, for example, but my dad was born there. So, you know, he has his birth certificate. And then he still has his American passport, but he has his green card. So they can't deny him that. So I guess I was denied because I didn't have that one piece of paper. And it's a doggy dog world, you know? And would you have preferred to race for Greece versus racing for the US? I don't know because I didn't do it. Uh, I know that the caliber of training, I'm not sure that I could say it would have been worse because I would have still trained with those guys. I mean, I wouldn't have moved to Greece. I would have stayed in Colorado. I would have stayed with Winter Park. I would have stayed with MSCB. I would have still trained with Jardine and all the U.S. team boys every day. You know, my, my training wouldn't change. I think the only thing that would change would be my suit. You know what? You'd still have this guy in the start at every race, you know, and like you say, flailing down the hill, 90 miles an hour, scaring scaring people like I scared you, but um, that you, you can't take the drive away and the determination. You can't take that away. doesn't matter what team you're on. Just like the other day, I was watching able-bodied slalom, and I said, hold on. There's a, there's a guy inspecting the second run wearing a Greek jacket. 
And my girlfriend looks and has, she says, how do you know it's a degree jacket? And I said, well, you can't read Greek. I can't. And I looked at the start list and there he was. And then the, uh, you know, it's not commentated anymore because there's no, there's nobody watching. But when this kid actually crossed the line and he finished the second run of slalom, that, that was probably like, the best thing a Greek skier has ever done in the career of Greek skiing. The guy's name is AJ, and they call him AJ, the Greek American skier. Well, they would have said, "There's George, the Greek, the Greek American racer." So is AJ Guinness? Yeah, he he raced. Yeah, yeah. He came up yeah. through the U.S. team. Yep, yeah. he's yeah. now racing yeah. for Greece, and right. I think he was 11th in a slalom. It was yeah. It was, yeah. First time yeah. a Greek skier had scored points. and First time a Greek skier ever scored points. That was just a few weeks ago. Because there's not a ton it of skiing awesome. in Greece. It was awesome. Not a lot yeah. of skiing in Greece. Uh, no, no, oh, no. Oh, no. no. There's, there's a couple places, um, but I've never been. Hey, I was on the team 15 years, and I had good snow. Why should I go to somewhere that didn't have snow? I mean, I've done it anyway, but um, I just didn't have a desire. But I would have switched. I mean, when you're talking about the money that they talk about, sometimes, you know, that piques your interest a little bit. Or you were going to get a whole lot more support if you raced with Greece, is what you're saying. Uh, well, if you get in the top 10, you get money. And you could be in first place on our team and not get a thing. But... You know what? I don't think that the money would have taken me. I just think that an experience, the experience would be, would be different, you know? Um, but I'm, in a way, I'm glad I didn't because I don't consider myself Greek. I'm, I'm a U.S. guy. And, uh, um, and everything that the U.S. has done for me and uh, I, I, I want to give back. So is that part of your goal? So you look at it right now, like you're on the ski team, you had your goals when you're on the ski team. You said that, that, that those were so important. Persistence was a, an important part of achieving those goals. Now that you've left that competitive arena, what are your goals and, and do you maintain, can you maintain that same kind of persistence? Uh, you know what? I want to help everybody that I can be a better skier. And if that's my girlfriend, if that's someone that I just see out skiing and I say, Hey, you know what? I'm not a pro, but you know, if you do this, this might help your turning better. And if that helps one person, <coughs> then I accomplish something for the day, you know? And I would like to get together with a ski team anywhere you know, in the, in the Denver area. And if that means one, one day a month to go out and ski with them or whatever, I, I don't need to get paid. I just want to go and ski with these kids, you know, and maybe give them a pointer or maybe catch something that a coach didn't say. I don't want to, I don't want to be the coach. I just want to be able to help them out because I took advice from everyone, not just my coaches, if I had a question about a turn and there wasn't a U.S. team coach there and there was another country there, they would help you. 
So that's how it should be. Everyone's there to see everybody get better. So if I can help anybody, if it's a racer, a recreational skier, or whatever it is, with anything in life, doesn't have to be skiing, shooting, skiing, golfing, you name it. I might suck at it, but if I can make someone's day better, then that's 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 the goal. What do you feel like you would have to offer them? Would it be would it be more technique oriented? Would it be more holistic? The idea of making it go quiet in the start. What what do you feel like you would you would offer them? Maybe maybe a little bit of positivity and maybe a little bit of goal setting. The positivity. How do you do that? How how do you help encourage them to maintain a positive outlook? Skiing is a sport where you do a whole lot more things wrong than you do right, generally. You right. come down and they go, okay, yeah, you might have done this right, but you did that wrong, that wrong, that wrong, that wrong. How do you how do you maintain the positive out of that? If you can do one thing right out of, out of 10 things, then you already improved. So it's that incremental improvement. After, you did yeah. something if you right. It's one thing out of 10 you've already helped yourself go and build on it. Okay. We've got a message from you from Bobby McMullen. He said, what's up, George? What's up, Bobby? What's up, you blinky? Can you <laughs> see us? Are you, are you able to see us? That's awesome. He, he, he can see us. We can't, we can't see him, you know, cause he's, cause this is oh. streaming to Facebook live. So on Facebook, Chris, I haven't been on Facebook in months you're gonna have to go now you'll be a big star i i I better go check my messages it might be blowing up right now it probably is it probably is exactly well so positivity uh the the sense of making it quiet in the in the start the persistent that worked but you know what the coaches always said here comes george you better be quiet it they wouldn't let the starter, they wouldn't let the start ref give me the countdown. And they said, he can watch the clock, he can hear the beeps. <laughs> Is there anything as as like a parting message? I mean, you've given us some you've certainly given us some nuggets here. Is there a parting message that you want to leave with the audience? Anything that you say, hey, this is this is what made my life meaningful, purposeful. All I can say is, is focus on what you do. Make every day better than the first. Don't give up. And if you got something in your mind, make it happen. George, that seems like great advice. And and we hope that you heal up quickly. This is going to be a bit of a long road recovering from shoulder surgery. I'm playing an elk hunt out in Utah with Monty Meyer. So if we come out there, we're going to come stop by your house and we'll uh, have a couple of beers or something. All right. That sounds like a great idea. You should definitely do that. Yeah, we'll heal we up quickly. Thanks, Thanks for joining us, George. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you. Same here, man. It's good to see you again. Have a great All day. Right. Take care, behave yourself, and we'll see you soon. All right. Take it easy. Bye. All right. Thanks, George. See ya.